can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning on the basis of that belief. Father, Son, and Spirit, we believe that you are who you say you are. You are who you revealed yourself to be from the Scriptures. That, Father, you are sitting on the throne over all creation right now. That Jesus, the Son, is right beside you, interceding for those for whom he died. And Spirit, we believe that you are present here among us this morning. And so, Father, we come to you in a season of great brokenness in the world all around us. Perhaps there's other seasons of time in which it would be easy for us to forget about the brokenness, but in this particular season, we see it every day. And so we gather to lament. We gather to lament the brokenness, and we gather to worship you in the midst of the darkness. We gather proclaiming stubbornly that in the midst of a broken world, we believe in hope because we believe in the cross and the resurrection. We gather in the in this stubborn conviction that even when things go wrong in our personal lives, that you work all things together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. We believe this, Father. And, and so, Father, help us in our hearts this morning be more concrete in what we believe and then more devout in how we live out what we believe. Father, we pray that you will speak to us through your word this morning so that we can believe more deeply and then follow more fully so that our hearts would be warmed by your word and that our affections would be kindled so that we would know how to live in the crazy circumstances each of us face each and every day. We confess this morning our confidence in you, and we confess this morning we have no idea what to do without you. We confess this morning that this world is too broken for us to fix, that our families are too broken for us to fix, that our workplaces bring bring in front of our eyes challenges that we cannot fix on our own, that our own flesh is too much for us to battle on our own so we believe in you and we trust in you and father on this mother's day we praise you for the gift of family and for the gift of mothers we praise you for the joy for the love the nurture and the care and the concern but father we do pray your presence among those for whom mother's day may be a difficult day because we know in our midst there are mothers that are grieving the loss of a child There are mothers that are grieving the loss of a spouse. There are children who are grieving the loss of a mother. And there are those that are grieving these losses, not just because of death, but because of great relational ruptures and distance. These things that happen in a a fallen and sinful world where, where two people get to such a point of discord that they can no longer continue in relationship. And even within families, we see it, Father. We pray your grace and comfort into those places of great pain. For the mother that has lost a child, Father, we pray your healing 
for the mother that has lost relationship with a child still living. We pray your grace and your wisdom to know how to speak and how to love even from afar. And Father, for those that are waiting still, that maybe long for children and have not had children, we pray for those mothers as well, that you would comfort their grieving hearts. Father, Mother's Day is a beautiful day because we celebrate the great gift that you have given us. And we recognize that you have given no greater calling to any human being than to shepherd an eternal soul towards the truth of the gospel and who you are. And so we celebrate mothers for their intensive role from the earliest days throughout a child's life in shepherding, protecting, caring, nurturing, and ultimately pointing an eternal soul towards the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, I pray that every mother in this room and every mother listening to this service would, would receive that calling from you, recognize the beauty of it, even in the exhaustion and the frustration and, and the great pain that is caused by, by how difficult motherhood is. Father, I pray you would renew their spirit and their hearts to give them the energy and the calling and the courage to live in the calling you've given them, to love a child well for the sake of your gospel and your glory. Father, renew us all in our calling to make disciples, first in our own households, but eventually to all nations. God, open your word to us as we dig through some difficult ground, as we speak of difficult truths. Father, we pray that you would speak today. And in Christ's name, and only in Christ's hope we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here, and happy Mother's Day to all of you who are mothers. And I pray that you have uh, some level of celebration today or this weekend, um, recognizing what a gift from God it is to have a loving mother and to um, have a loving family. And so today is a day that is surely worth celebrating. And for you mothers that may be discouraged or exhausted or just tired, finding it hard to find sleep in these days, I pray you would be encouraged by God that your calling towards motherhood is real. This is what God has called you to, to shepherd an eternal soul, to protect that life that he has created and to point them towards ultimate redemption in Christ. I pray we would all be renewed in that commitment, but especially you mothers on this, your special day. Um, we do have four mothers. There is, uh, you probably saw it as you were coming in, as it was being offered to the first service, but on your way out, we would encourage any mothers to grab a glass of lemonade as just a simple way of honoring and thanking you for all you do. And if anybody that's not a mother wants a lemonade, it's $2. And um, Rika told me not to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but no, it is actually intended for mothers. Um, but thank you guys for being here and for you extra ones that are celebrating with your mothers today. It's a beautiful thing, and, and I so commend you for that. A couple things in the life of the church. Um, because of Mother's Day, we will not have Awana and our normal youth lifted meeting this evening. And we want families to really make this a family day and have extra time to spend together. So uh, kids in youth ministry will not be meeting on our campus this evening. Um, 
next week, we will have a women's lunch immediately after this, the second service. About 1230, it's going to be starting in the Backstage Cafe, which is in the front building. If you've never been there before, and we, we can help you find it after the service um, next week. But uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the gymnasium, and we need you to sign up just so we know who is coming and how much food to order, uh, that sort of thing. The purpose of this is fellowship. It's an event for ladies in the church to get together, to get to know each other. The church has changed significantly over the last uh, six months to a year. We have lots of new people that have come in. It's a beautiful thing. It's something to celebrate, um, but it's also something to be strategic in how we create opportunities for uh, people to get together in social settings and just make introductions, uh, sit at a table with somebody that you've never met before, and get to know other people within this church family. So we would encourage any of you, whether you've been here for 50 years or been here for five minutes and this is your first service, we would love for you to join um, the ladies' ministry for that uh, next Sunday. And then on the 29th is another fellowship event, and that will be our Memorial Day picnic at People's Farm in Ringgold. And you'll get details, you'll get map and directions, all that kind of stuff for that um, closer to the event. It's about three weeks from now. It's exactly three weeks from now. Um, May the 29th at exactly right now is when we need to be at People's Farm. We will start our service at 11 a.m. Yes, we will have a service there at the picnic at 11 a.m. And then we'll have lunch afterwards. We will have nothing on this campus that morning. So don't come here. If you come here, you'll be greeted with a sign that tells you to go there and um, meet at 11, lunch after the service. Uh, church will provide uh, fried chicken and beverages. You guys provide sides and desserts. And uh, then there's fields, there's playground, there's uh, volleyball, there's just stuff to do to just hang out. So plan to come at 11, eat lunch, and then stay for a few hours after lunch. It's just going to be a fun fellowship event where we can get to know other people within this church body. So please, all of you, make, make a point to be there if at all possible. Now, I want, to, I want you to turn to Lamentations chapter 1. We really are going to start Lamentations this week after I said I would last week and didn't. Um, but I wanted to get us kind of set up on what the biblical concept of lament was. And now that we've gone through kind of an easier lament to unpack in Psalm 13, and if at any point this week you don't know what I'm talking about with lament, I would really encourage you. Um, I'm going to build a lot off of some things I said last week. So, so go back and listen to last week if you haven't had a chance to do so uh, on Psalm 13 and sort of an introduction to lament. Today's lament talks about loneliness. And so I told you that last week, um, I briefly mentioned sort of the low point in my life and the most intense grief that I've ever personally experienced. Um, and I said it last week of saying, you know, I should probably tell this story again. And I recognize that I often refer back to the loss that Jess and I experienced of our twin boys that happened 10 years ago, but, but I, haven't, I don't talk about it uh, in, in a whole lot of services. I feel like I have a lot over the last 10 years. But with so many new people that have come in, this, that season of time 10 years ago so significantly shapes the way I'm approaching this. It, it, I feel like it's time to tell the story. Um, the loneliest point I've ever felt in my life was right there in that season. And, and this Lamentations 1 is going to tell you about the loneliness and the intense loneliness that we experience in grief. And, and I've lived it. 
and I remember exactly where I was. I was at one of the busiest spots in Dalton, Georgia, sitting at the stoplight, um, Doug Gap Road and, um, and Walnut Avenue, and I'm sitting there, ready to going north on Doug Gap, ready to turn left on Walnut Avenue, sitting at a stoplight, impatiently, I'm really good at impatience, sitting there wanting everybody else to move faster and wanting everybody else to recognize how mad, hurt, and how alone I am. Because in the, in the aftermath of that, we, had, we, have, we have experienced this incredible loss, my wife and I, and I'm sitting there in traffic at a stoplight watching everybody pass by as if they have no care or concern in the world, and I am, I am dying inside. And, and here's why. Um, so uh, just over 10 years ago now, um, my wife and I found out that, we, um, that she was pregnant. We were expecting our first child. It was incredible. It was exciting. It was, um, we had, we were pretty new in town here. Um, we moved in, in 2010. This happened in 2011. And we thought, man, God is really doing something amazing here. God is blessing us. Everything is going right. And, uh, and then it, it kind of got a little bit crazier, but in a better sort of way, in that we found out, we go to the first ultrasound um, experience, and I will never forget this, because we're sitting in the ultrasound room, and the doctor pulls up the ultrasound, and he makes this like reaction like, huh, or oh wow, I don't remember exactly what he said, but there was this like surprise in his voice, and we're like, what's going on? Why is he surprised? What's, what's, what's going on over here? And then he just moves the ultrasound away, and he starts like doing measurements and doing the responsible doctor things. And we're like, why is he, Jess and I are sitting there like struggling this whole time. Why was he so surprised? What is he about to tell us that we don't know? And then he goes back and it's like, oh, there's two. There's two circles and there's, there's two babies in the two circles. And it's not one baby that we're expecting, it's twins. And, I, and I, there's so much joy in that moment, so much excitement, a little bit of overwhelming, a little bit of crazy. What are we going to do with these two? And then came the point of the reveal of recognizing um, two boys. And two boys sounds kind of crazy. And there, there was, again, the great joy and excitement with a little bit of what in the world, how are we going to survive having two twin boys? And, and then as we go through this, there's just excitement after excitement after excitement as we are preparing for this and getting ready to just jump into the sleepless nights, into the craziness of parenting, and, and we feel like God is blessing us. And then all of a sudden comes this unexpected delivery. And um, one of our boys was born uh, almost immediately after we, we got to the hospital. The doctor tried to slow the labor, was, was not able to do so, and um, we lost Levi, our first son, uh, almost immediately. And then we thought, well, maybe we know what God is doing now because God has protected the second son, uh, Tate. And Tate, we hoped, would be delivered later. He was delivered a little bit later, not much later, still that same day. But Tate breathed, and Tate was able to go to the NICU, and um, they sent Tate in an ambulance down to Emory Hospital to go to the ICU, and we thought, there's hope here. There's something for us to cling to, something for us to pray about. Maybe this is God's redemptive story, where we've lost one, but God's going to work a miracle with the other. And three days later, we lost Tate as well. And then it was a couple of days after that that I'm staying at that stoplight. I'm just mad, because I don't get it. I don't understand. And, and frankly, I had been kind of spoiled. Um, I, I'm, I'm okay saying that now. Like, I had a really good life. I had a really uh, privileged and, and, and protected life in so many ways. 
And there were so many ways that everything in my life had gone so well for such a long period of time that I was not used to something not going well. And it felt like God just was protecting me and Jess and had his hand on us and was blessing us. And then all of a sudden, bam, we crash into this wall of great grief and suffering. And I'm sitting at a stoplight and I feel alone. Nobody in the world gets it. Nobody else is here. And in that moment, the, the enemy rushed in to my heart and mind and deceived me in such a way that I, I immediately forgot that, I mean, never has Jess and I's marriage been stronger than, than in that period. And we have grown so much since then. I don't want to go back to where our marriage was before that crisis because of all that God has done in us. And the church, I mean, we're here where we are um, 11 years later because of how God just moved and worked through the church in our lives um, in that crisis 11 years ago. God was good. God was gracious. I knew all that. I felt all that. But in that moment of crushing grief at a stoplight, it felt like I was the only one in the world suffering and everybody else was just good. And that's what grief does to us. And so I told you last week that when we approach lament, we approach lament as a process. And, and, and scripturally, the poetic elements of the scriptural form of lament, the literary style of lament as a type of prayer in scripture, uh, goes through four steps. Number one, you turn to God because lament is a prayer. Uh, number two, you complain, you, you voice your complaints. Number three, you ask of God a question. And then number four, you trust in God. And so this is going to go through there. It's going to feel a little bit different than it did last week. Last week, that four-part structure was really, really simple. This week, it's, it's not going to be as simple, but we'll still talk about it. But this week, the story of Lamentations 1 is the story of loneliness. So that's where we start, the great loneliness of suffering. And that will be our first seven verses, and then we'll go into the shame of suffering, Something important to see out of Lamentations 1 and out of the entire book of Lamentations that we are going to be careful in how we transfer it into our lives. The story of Lamentations is a story of self-inflicted suffering. God is just to punish Judah as a nation for what they have done in rebellion against him. That theme comes out repeatedly. We need to be careful in how we approach that in our suffering, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Then we're talking about the justice of suffering and finally, the hope we see in suffering. So join me in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll talk about loneliness. Actually, wait, before I do that, let, let, me, let me tell you something. You look, at, you look at the book of Lamentations. It's amazing what, what Jeremiah does here. I do believe this book was written by Jeremiah, the prophet. Um, some of the ancient uh, versions of Lamentations have an inscription at the beginning where there's a few words added before verse 1 in Lamentations 1, where it says, And Jeremiah wept and cried aloud, and then how lonely sits a city in, in Lamentations 1.1. I do believe Jeremiah wrote this. I believe Jeremiah wrote it at a specific moment in Israel's history where the temple had been utterly, completely destroyed. And I think it's worth talking about that for a second and just setting some historical context for us. Because as we look through 66 books of the Bible, I understand that for a guy like me sometimes, it's easy to drop in and know what's going on historically. And for people that, that don't do what I do and spend every day trying to study and, and teach it to others, it's really easy to forget where we are in the timeline. So 
God chose for himself a people through Abraham. They became a nation. They became a nation as he pulled them out of Egypt where they were enslaved. The children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, were enslaved in Egypt. God pulled them out, put them in a promised land, defeated their enemies for them in Joshua, and then in Judges they had leaders for themselves, and then in Kings and Chronicles, in Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, they had three kings that were the kings over the nation of Israel. Saul, then David, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon, the nation split into two parts. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel that retained the name Israel, but then you have the southern kingdom called Judah. But the capital city of Jerusalem was in Judah. Uh, and you have ten tribes of, uh, of Israel go up north in Israel, and two tribes are a part of the nation or the kingdom of Judah. And then you get to this point where after Solomon, there was a whole lot of wickedness and rebellion. A lot of idolatry, a lot of trusting in other nations rather than God himself, a lot of returning to wickedness and sinfulness time after time after time. There were some good kings and there were some moments of national revitalization and revival, but there were also way more negative seasons than positive seasons. Okay, And so in Israel in particular, Israel was very wicked. Judah had a few more positive kings than Israel did. Israel had very little positive happen after the nation split. Israel was taken away in 720, 722 B.C. by the nation of Assyria. Okay? So you have Israel, Judah, and all these other nations around them. Assyria comes in, decimates the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And Judah just watches. And Judah's like, man, too bad for them. But Judah doesn't actually repent and turn around the way that you would expect them to. Here are their brothers, sisters, and cousins being carried off into exile and being destroyed because of their wickedness. Israel was destroyed because, as a nation, Israel did not trust in God and did not turn to God even when the Assyrians were coming in to wipe them out. Judah didn't do it either, even as they watched Israel get knocked out. One of the reasons Judah didn't do it is Judah thought, we are going to do the minimum possible to maintain God's protection. And we have an advantage over Israel. And the big advantage that Judah had over Israel was the temple. God's house. God's not going to let his house be destroyed. God's not going to let his house be defamed. He's not going to allow the Assyrians to get down here to Jerusalem and destroy the temple. So we're good. Well, then Babylon comes. And in the 580s B.C., 140 years after Israel was wiped out, Babylon comes and starts, starts encroaching into, into the nation of Judah. And they lay siege to Jerusalem, to where nothing gets in and out of Jerusalem for three years unless the Babylonians let it in or out. And so in that process, they are starving the children of Jerusalem. They're starving the people of Jerusalem to weaken them so that they will just lay down their arms and Babylon can go in easily and just take over everything. And all the while, the people in Jerusalem are saying, God will intervene miraculously. He will not let his temple be, be overtaken and fall into desolation. But then God just removes his hand of protection. And God removes his hand of protection. It's very clear in Lamentations. God removes his hand of protection and sends the Babylonians for justice because Jerusalem has rebelled against God. And when we step into Lamentations chapter 1, this temple 
is gone. It's decimated. And you might think, well, isn't there a temple when Jesus shows up? You know, just a few weeks ago, we were in Luke, and there was a temple there. That is a rebuilt temple. The temple got destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. So um, the temple that Jesus was interacting with, that was teaching in, that was not the temple that Jerusalem is lamenting, or that Jeremiah is lamenting here. The temple that Jeremiah is lamenting is the temple that Solomon built. But then Ezra and Nehemiah come back, rebuild the walls, rebuild a smaller version of the temple. That one gets destroyed too. And then Rome comes in and Rome conquers Israel and Jerusalem. And Rome allows Herod, the kind of fake king, to build his own temple. That's the temple that Jesus saw. That's the temple that Jesus was, was around and teaching in and talking about. That was Herod's temple. So this is, there's a lot that happens with the temple, and I want you to understand where we are in the timeline. Yes, there's a temple when Jesus is, is there, but 600 years before Jesus, when Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, there's no more temple. It was just destroyed. And that's where Jeremiah steps in, in Lamentations 1, with his story, his song of lament. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Here's what we know here. Jerusalem is the she. Jeremiah is making a comparison that's going to continue throughout Lamentations 1. Anytime you see she referred to in Lamentations 1, he is speaking of the city of Jerusalem, who in her loneliness is like a widow. Because the, the city is empty. There's nobody walking down the street anymore. The buildings are desolate and demolished. That's the picture here. So he personifies a city as if the city is a widow, a grieving woman who has lost her husband. A princess who, because her prince has died, has now become a slave. Verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her <clears throat> in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. So this is the loneliness of grief. Multiple times in this passage we are told that this woman is lonely, that this woman, in verse 2, has no one to comfort her, and that becomes the theme of Lamentations 1, the lack of comfort. Now why is the woman Jerusalem not receiving any comfort? Because she has rejected her comforter. God was there to protect. God was there to provide. God was there to rescue her from her enemies. But she rejected God. The people of Jerusalem rejected God, rebelled, and they chose two things. 
They chose idols, and they chose foreign alliances. And in choosing idols and their foreign alliances, they rejected God. They said, we don't have enough confidence in God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, to protect us, so we're going to make an alliance with a neighboring nation to protect us. That's why you see in this passage that others, her friends, have failed her. Her other lovers have given up on her. What that means is that the alliances, when they need those alliances, the alliances fail. And the one they rejected, for the sake of the alliances, has allowed them to now suffer this great um, sorrow and this great pain. So the city is lonely like a widow, a princess losing her royal husband and going from the highest of highs, God's chosen people, to being a slave now of this pagan nation, Babylon. She weeps bitterly because none of the alliances she made are there to comfort her. And the roads that were once filled with celebration in verse 4, all of those feasts and festivals that used to be such a part of Israel's life and culture, the singing and dancing industry and the celebration, all of that is gone. And if you want to know what that looks like, we, we see that in the news today. We, we see the news footage of what, happens in, of what is happening in Ukraine, and you see that's what a desolate city looks like. This is what Jeremiah is seeing the first century version of that. A city that was once busy with people. That's where he sees the loneliness. How lonely do some of those images see that we see on the news when we see busy streets that are empty and buildings that were once beautiful now destroyed. That's that picture of loneliness, that of emptiness that Jeremiah is talking about. But while Jerusalem is suffering, Jerusalem's enemies in verse 5 are prospering. And God has turned himself against Jerusalem. And in verse 7, ultimately, there is none to help. There's no comforter. She's alone. There's none to help. But in verse 8, Jeremiah starts to tell us a little bit more about why this is happening. The shame of self-inflicted suffering. This is verses 8 through 11. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan <clears throat> as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Verse 9 is where you see the turn, okay? Verses, I told you that there's a structure to these to these psalms of lament, or whether they're psalms or the book of Lamentations. First, you turn to God. The first eight verses are not really addressed to God. But in verse 9, Jeremiah starts to talk to God. And Jeremiah here speaks on behalf of the people. And it's confusing sometimes in Lamentations to know who's speaking. Is Jeremiah speaking? Is the nation speaking? Is the city of Jerusalem, this widow speaking, but I want you to see it as if Jeremiah is speaking for the nation, for Jerusalem, when he cries out, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. That's the first stage of lament, the turn towards God. <clears throat> and the turn towards God is because the enemy is prospering, 
Look at verse 10. God, your sanctuary is being defiled. God did not allow, when he instituted the temple, he did not allow people to go into the holiest of holies except for certain priests at a certain time of years. And now the Babylonians have just decimated the whole thing. They don't care about the, tur- the curtain that was blocking off the, the rest of the temple from the holiest of holies. They don't care about God's uh, directions for who could enter into the temple mount and where the, the different gates are, are. They don't care about any of that. They just decimated the whole thing. And that's the lament. That's the problem in verse 10. And in verse 11, the people who God fed with manna in the wilderness cannot find bread in the promised land. That's how extreme this fall has been. When they were living in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, God provided bread for them. And now they're in God's capital city in the promised land where God has worked miracle after miracle after miracle. They are on the very mountain where God provided a lamb in a thicket so that Isaac would not have to die. On that same mountain where God would, uh, where the priests would sacrifice blood to atone for sin and God provided for the forgiveness and the atonement of sin. On that same mountain, they can't get bread. They can't get grain and they can't eat. It's amazing the heights from which they have fallen. But here's something I want you to see here. Verse 8 gives us the cause of all of it. The cause of this suffering is self-inflicted. And we have to understand that as we approach Lamentations. Everything in Lamentations is a result of justice. God is just. God is holy. And when you sin against God, you experience repercussions. And we have to recognize, though, we are now on the other side of the cross where we proclaim there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have received the sacrifice of Jesus, your sins have been paid for, and therefore you will not be punished for your sins. Okay? And so this is an important distinction here. But we recognize that we can still suffer because of sin. In fact, I'll say it strongly this way. The reason for this intense suffering in the book of Lamentations is intense sin. And then we'll go from that and we'll say the reason for all suffering is sin. But the reason for all suffering is not the sin of the sufferer. And that's an important, valuable distinction. That without sin, there would be no suffering. But just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're suffering because of your sin. John 9, Jesus looked at his disciples as his disciples were asking, this guy is blind. Why is he blind, Jesus? Is he blind because of his parents' sin or is he blind because of his sin? And Jesus said, why do you still not get it? No, he's not blind because of his parents' sin. No, he's not blind because of his own sin. Actually, Jesus says something kind of crazy. Jesus says he's blind so that I can show you how powerful I am. He's blind so that I can show you my work and so that you can recognize. Why was the blind man blind? Not because he sinned, not because his parents sinned. He was blind because sinners needed to see God's hand at work. If anything, whose sin caused that man to be blind? is crazy to say. Maybe even the disciples' sin. Because the disciples needed to see God's hand at work, needed to see God's power at work so that they could understand what forgiveness of sin actually meant. It's crazy to think about that way. But the truth is, the sin that led towards that man being blind was the sin of the entire world. 
Because the entire world needed to see God's miraculous hand of redemption, of, of, of provision for that man, and forgiveness of sins for the world. And so, yeah, sin caused it, but it wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sin. So we see that this is where we turn to God, and we recognize that suffering is the result of sin, but it's not because we're being punished for our sin. Uh, suffering is a result, self-inflicted suffering um, still happens to Christians, might happen differently. If you are suffering in your life, it is not because, if you're a Christian, it's not because God is punishing you. It may be because God is just kind of letting you deal with the repercussions of your own dumb decision. I mean, that, that happens. That's not punishment from God. That's God just letting you deal with the repercussions of reaping what you sow. And so, yeah, you might be suffering through your own, because of your own actions, because you reap some, or you are reaping some stuff that you shouldn't have sown in the first place. So, yeah, Christians do suffer because of our own actions. But when we suffer because of our own actions, it is not divine punishment. It is often divine discipline or God removing his hand so that we can see the repercussions of our actions and we can see what life is actually like if God's not miraculously protecting us at all times. The, the end is destruction for life without God. But, but oftentimes, Christians suffer. The, the suffering that Jess and I endured in the loss of our twins wasn't because of our sin or our parents' sin or, or anything like that. It was because we live in a broken and sinful world and we don't always see the direct correlation, causation of what sin caused a certain thing, but we know that Romans 8 tells us all, all creation is groaning because of the sins of the sons of man. That mankind's sin has left us in such a place where the created order itself is groaning, awaiting our redemption and the full restoration of all things on that last day. So it's important to notice, suffering is a result of sin. God did not create a world of suffering. God created a world that was good, and when his people rebelled against him to sin, suffering came along with sin. But in this suffering, there is justice. God is pouring out justice on a nation that has rebelled against him. Look at verse 12. Jeremiah now addresses everybody else. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. This is the selfishness of grief, y'all. And this is where I was at that stoplight that day. Looking at all these passers-by. You guys, what is wrong with you? Don't you recognize that I'm in a hurry and I'm mad and I'm sad and I have had the worst experience of my life and I just want you to get out of my way so I can go through this intersection? And it was this great selfishness where it, I wanted to be the only person on the road at the time because they didn't know how much I was suffering. And I wanted them to know how much I was suffering. And that is what grief does to us. The enemy comes in and he tricks us to think we're all alone. And then he tricks us into the thinking, into acting like we're the center of the universe. And, and these things can be so destructive at the point of grief where we forget all of the great resources we have in God himself, in the community around us. This is what Jeremiah is doing. He's mad at everybody else that doesn't experience the sorrow he is experiencing. The sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. 
From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend to spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck, and he caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears as again a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, calling for help, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his work. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. So there's the call out to the foreign alliances. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Call out to, fo- to false gods all you want. Call out to, to foreign alliances all you want. But when God's hand is against you because of your rebellion, they're not going to help you. There is no one to comfort. Again, in verse 16 and 17, that's the third and fourth time Jeremiah has said, there's no one to comfort Jerusalem in verses 16 and 17. There's no one to comfort because Israel has rejected her comforter, because Judah has rejected her comforter. But I want you to look back. Look at verse 14 that I just read. It says, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. It's like God took all of the sins of Judah. Or, thinking personally about Jeremiah, God took all the sins of Jeremiah and bound them together in this ball and tied it around his neck to weigh him down so that he finally got a sense of how heavy his sins actually were. And by God's own hand, that yoke was fastened together to pull him down, to, to, rec- to get him to recognize how weak he was that he could not make it on his strength. Guys, we're going to stop right there, and we're just going to, we're going to talk about the gospel for a little bit. Because Jesus is the one that steps up, and he steps in into Israel uh, 600 years later, and he says, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when Jesus says to those who he dies for, take my yoke upon you, what he is doing is he's asking for an exchange. He's asking for that yoke Jeremiah is describing to then come on him. And you may think, this seems so ruthless of God. It seems so tough and of God. How could God do this to his people to allow this great yoke of burden and punishment to be weighed down upon them? It is in part for us that God is allowing this great desolate picture to occur in Jerusalem in that generation so that we could see, so that the generation that was 600 years after that in Israel could see the beauty of a yoke that is light. When Jesus says, no, 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 you don't have to carry the weight of your sin. Jesus is showing Jeremiah and Judah, you can't carry the weight of your sin. And then for us, he says, but the good news is you don't have to, because I'm going to carry it for you. 
This is where, in, in the stages of lament, he turns to God in prayer, verses 8 through 11. He's complaining now in verses 12 through 19. And again, it's not a bad thing to complain in lament. That's inherent to what a lament is. A lament is a prayer of complaint that is moving from a process, moving along a process from a point of great pain with a destination of hope. That once you have voiced your pain, you can get to the destination of hope. And in his complaint, Jeremiah is saying, this is bad, this is hard, but he is also saying, this is just. He says, the, the Lord has done it. God has done it. Verse 12 makes it clear, God did this. Verse 18 makes it clear, God was right to do this. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But then Jeremiah closes with a final request and a statement of trust. The last two stages of lament, we see it in verse 20, and we see the hope in suffering. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to read 20 through 22, and you're going to be like, that doesn't sound super hopeful. But the good news is that, again, we're on the other side of the cross from where this has taken place. So we'll talk about how our hope far exceeds the hope Jeremiah describes. Look, O Lord, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Again, Jeremiah recognizing, Jerusalem as a whole recognizing, God is just. We deserve to be punished for how we rebelled against him. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Here's the request right here. The last phrase of verse 21 is the only request. Let them be as I am. The prayer, the ask, is founded on God's justice. One of Jeremiah's problems, one of Jerusalem's problems, is that they are receiving the justice of God and the punishment from God, while the enemies that are far more wicked than they are, are prospering. And so Jeremiah's only request of God in this whole passage, let them be as I am. Pour out your judgment on them too. Don't let them escape your justice, God. Be just as you are. Be who you say you are. Verse 22, let all their evil deeds doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions for my groans are many and my heart is faint so the only hope that jeremiah can muster in this passage is that god is just and if god is just then that means the his enemies won't prosper over him forever if god is just then just as as god is allowing jerusalem to be destroyed god is going to allow other ancient uh, other rival cities to be destroyed and if God is just, then at least we know how the world works. At least it's going to be fair because God is just. But guys, our hope goes far beyond the trust that Jeremiah is voicing for justice. Because yes, we do proclaim that God is a God of justice. And that is great news. But God is not just a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. And God is a God who has paid the penalty to achieve justice for us. I'm going to give us three pieces of hope out of this. Three ways we find hope. We hope in our lament and in our suffering because we know that sin is the problem. And sin has a solution. 
You know the point, you know what brings you to despair is when you know there's a problem and you don't know what the solution is. You don't know, it feels like you're at this point of such great despair and there's no hope because there's no answer to your question. There's no solution to your problem. There's no way out. We know that if sin is the problem, if sin is the cause of all suffering, and sin has already been dealt with at the cross, and sin, the effects of sin have an end date, then that means also that suffering has an end date. And so because sin is the problem for all suffering, it guarantees for us that the, that the solution to sin is also the solution to suffering. And so when we, when we look at our suffering and we say in Psalm 90, uh, the psalmist says, God, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's the great beauty of suffering and lament is that at that point where I was sitting at a stoplight recognizing in my most selfish moment, my most selfish moment was also my most lonely moment. All right? Nobody else gets it. Nobody else cares. Nobody else is experiencing what I experienced. Now, because I recognize that my sin has been dealt with, and this suffering will one day end. I can look back at that moment of deep pain. I can sit at that same stoplight, which I've done probably a thousand times since then over the last 10 years, and I cannot think of myself, but I can think, what might that person over there be suffering? What might that person over there be going through that I do not understand? What might that person at the cash register line in front of me be suffering, be dealing with, that I have just absolutely no clue because we need to know our days are numbered. We need to know that this life is not the end. We need to know that we will all pass one day from this life into the next. And if we know that, that's the only path to wisdom. That's what the psalmist says. So those, listen, as you gather with your family today, and grandma really wants to see you on Mother's Day, do it. Go see her. Because she's lived a lot and she's grieved a lot. And the more you grieve, the more you recognize the beauty of the little moments. The more you recognize the beauty of those little lunches, of those little meals that are not going to be here forever. Because someday there's going to be somebody that's missing from those little moments, from those little meals. And so that little hope, guys, that, that's part of what we have to hold on to right now. Of those beautiful moments where we recognize because we have lost, because we have grieved, there is so much more beauty in this life than we recognize. Because we recognize, too, that sin is the problem. Therefore, there's a solution, and it is Jesus on the cross. Uh, there's also this recognition, we're not the only ones. The Romans 8 recognition. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He goes on to say, the creation is groaning inwardly. The whole created world is suffering because of mankind's sin. You're not the only one suffering. We're not the only ones suffering. The world itself is, we are all suffering. We all have something to lament, have something to grieve. We're all here in the same place together and we either cling to Christ in it or we don't. So only distinction. The distinction between people is not whether you suffer or whether you don't suffer. The distinction between people is how you suffer, whether you suffer with Jesus based on the blood of Christ, having hope in the midst of the suffering, or you suffer as if there is no God and you have no hope. So we have to make a decision because we can't control whether or not we suffer. We control how we suffer, with Christ 
or without Christ. And finally, we hope because we have been given a comforter. Jesus, the Son of God, looked at his closest friends and said, Guys, I'm, I'm leaving, but you're going to like it. <laughs> it's going to be better for you once I'm gone. You're going to appreciate, you're going to understand better why I have to leave when the comforter comes. Five times in Lamentations 1, Jeremiah, where is the comforter? Where is the comforter? Where is the comforter? And listen, if you have recognized that you cannot live your life on your own, that you cannot find comfort on your own, and you've recognized that your sins have, have rebelled against God and created for you this yoke that you cannot bear, if you get to that point of, rec of recognition where you feel the yoke of your suffering on you and you want that yoke to disappear, when you believe in Jesus and you receive his sacrifice for yourself, then you have new life and you have the comforter that comes to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is hope here, but the ultimate hope is not for today. The comforter is here for today, to bring us comfort and hope today. But the hope is not today, the hope is that day. So I'm going to ask the band to come up, we're going to sing one more song, but I'm going to, I'm going to introduce this song with the passage that we're all talking about. The passage that Lamentations 1 is talking about, the passage that the song is talking about, Revelation 21 verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city that was a widow in Lamentations 1.1. The same city, New Jerusalem, has ended her grieving and is coming down from heaven with God in Revelation 21-2 as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. They will never again cry out, Where is our comforter? Because in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have all passed away. Will you stand and sing with us?
Father, we're gathered in victory. We're gathered in a place of great sorrow and pain for many of us, but also a place of great rejoicing because we recognize the victory we have in you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that is still struggling to find a place of hope, that they would not despair, they would not give up, but that, Father, they would cling towards you, cling to your word, and cling to the community that you've given 
May we find hope together, Father. May we battle for hope together. If there's anyone who feels the crushing weight of the yoke of their sin on them right now, Father, remove it by your grace. As you lead them to confess their sins to you, that they would receive you in new righteous life and that they would receive the forgiveness of their sins. Father, bring, bring any questioners, bring any questioners to yourself and use us to answer the questions to bring many sons to glory. And now, Father, send us out in your blessing, recognizing that Jesus has died and Jesus has won victory because he conquered death and he left the grave empty. And so we long for that day, Father. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.